I was so scared of putting my voice out in the world that before I would go to events in the 2016 campaign, I would be nauseous. I could barely function. I had two choices, walk away, stay in my shell, or do the thing that scared me the most. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Hey, everyone, it's Danielle. Today, our guest is Huma Abedin. She started as an intern at the White House when Hillary Clinton was first lady and has stayed close to Hillary ever since. She was an aide and personal advisor, deputy chief of staff at the State Department, and a crucial figure in Hillary's 2016 presidential campaign. Huma is also known for her personal life, including her previous marriage to former Congressman Anthony Weiner. And Huma is now telling her own story in her own words. Her memoir, Both and A Life in Many Worlds, is out on November 2nd. Huma, thank you for joining me. Danielle, as I think you know, I'm a huge fan of both you and Carly. So I'm thrilled and honored to be on your show. This had to be like a tough book to write for a lot of reasons. And just as someone who has seen you in various roles at various points. Congratulations for getting it out there. So I want to tell you, actually, this book was great therapy. I mean, there were definitely moments that I was wandering around the sidewalk outside my building saying, what did I do? Why am I doing this? But everything I went through, it took processing. So I'm so excited to be sharing this book with the world. Okay, lightning round. Quick questions, quick answers. Here we go. First job on your resume. Working in my dad's office, office assistant. Most recent job on your resume. I haven't had to do a resume in 25 years. So chief of staff to Hillary Clinton. I think actually author is the most recent. You know what? I'm switching it. I'm updating my resume right after we hang up. Author. I love it. Yes. I'm going to brag for you. How many languages do you speak? I speak three, one fluently, two not so fluently, Arabic and Urdu. What best describes your workday? Working nine till blank. Working nine till 10, 12 hour days, I would say still. Are you an inbox zero person? Oh God, no. I wish I was. I can't be. My mind doesn't work like that. What is the last trip abroad that you took? I went home to Saudi Arabia in July to pack up my family home after 42 years. Wow. It was really hard, really hard, but also really amazing. Last TV show you binge watch? I just finished Manifest, the last season, which is excellent. I gave up after like the first five episodes. I really wanted it to be like a new Lost, but it it did not get there for me. (laughs) See, I never got into Lost. I was working too much when Lost was like the thing to watch, but I really got into Manifest. I don't know what it was. It was the divine versus, you know, the earth. I don't know. I, 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 really I mean, liked it, it. it had a lot of things going on. A lot of things. <laughs> what is something there? There's a lot that you can Google about you, but what's something that someone can't Google about you? I am a really, really big eater. 
if I have an addiction or a proclivity, it's like food. I love food. That's your vice. That's a hundred percent. That's the word I was looking for, actually. Yeah, that was my next question. That is my vice. That's a good one. I mean, look, I had my first big day of interviews today, right? I wanted to like feel good. And you know what I ate for dinner last night? What? Three slices of pizza. Let's jump into the interview because we've got you in like your happy zone thinking about the pizza. Yeah. So when I first started reading the book, there's a lot you could have started off with. And there's been a lot of aspects to you that, that are explored in the book. What I didn't expect was the intrigue and passion that comes along from learning about your family. And I think it does really read to me as a letter to both of your parents. Talk about how those roots really came to help you. You've been in this position of having so much to offer about the Middle East, but how far that goes into your family story. I've been asked often by people who are familiar with my adult public life and the trials and the challenges that I went through, like, how did you get through it? And I really do believe I am the product of two parents, both of whom I was very close to. My father essentially was given a terminal diagnosis when I was two. I was born in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And when I was two, he was diagnosed with renal failure. His kidneys were failing. And the doctors basically said, you have five to 10 years, so get your affairs in order. My father was told he was dying. So he went out and lived. And like four months later, we were on a plane to Saudi Arabia. Both my parents were professors. My mother, who was the first person in her family to come to the United States and study abroad and came from a family that supported women's and girls' education. But the reality is my my mother was essentially homeschooled. Her mother had to fight to go to school. And her grandmother lived at a time in India where it was considered shameful for women to go out into the street and let alone be educated. So when my mother got on that plane to come to Pennsylvania, people literally asked, what is wrong? What are you thinking that you're putting your daughter on the plane? So these were the people who raised me. I was raised in a fairly conservative country But my parents, from the minute I have conscious memory, told me and my siblings, the four of us, you can do whatever it is you want to do. All we require is that you be educated. And in a society, in a culture that I come from, where at least when I was growing up, there were three jobs you could have, doctor, lawyer, engineer. And if you were a girl, it was to get married. And if you read that in the book, I certainly had friends who were doing that at 15, 16. And For my parents, my dad would say this to me, two things. One, he would say, your eyes are at the front of your head, not in the back for a reason. I loved that. By the way, I like wanted to write it on a post-it note to have on my mirror every day. Yeah. And he was right. He's like, it's to look forward. And he never said doctor, lawyer, engineer, anything. He said, if you go to university in America, study history. Doesn't mean you have to be a historian or, you know, go teach history. But to understand the past, and it helps inform the next generation of leaders how to make decisions in the world. It's one of the reasons I'm so proud of this book, and I hope he's proud of it and my mother is proud of it, because I think my dad always believed I would be a writer. He died two months before I moved to America for the first time when I was 17. And he had said coming to America would be like a revolution and to not forget my roots. He was a tremendous plantsman. He would tell us when we were little, it doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside, it's only as good as its roots. And if you nourish the roots, if you nourish that soil, if you have a strong foundation, take that plant and put it anywhere, it's going to flourish. And I think that's what, in starting with that, 
I really feel like so many people are able to themselves see how you were able to get through what would would come ahead. I want to fast forward. You went from being an intern in the White House straight to being an employee. Like, what did you do right that got (laughs) the right people, literally the right people to notice you? I love it. I love it. Okay. So I will start by saying I make very clear in the book that my dream was to be Christian Amanpour. So when I was living in Saudi Arabia watching the first Gulf War, Operation Desert Storm, I saw her on TV and she just captivated me. And I said, I'm going to be a journalist. I came to study at uh, George Washington University. And I believe so much of my luck has been a combination of fate, luck, and hard work. Those three things. I was involved in a few different student organizations and a friend of the Black Student Union said, oh, hey, I'm interning for Mike McCurry, who at the time was the White House press secretary. And this would be a great opportunity for you to get your foot in the door. I never thought this was going to be longer than a three-month gig. I was kind of disappointed by it. I wanted to be in the press office. And I didn't even know if I was a Democrat when I joined that internship program. And it really just felt like there was a tremendous amount of good work happening both domestically and internationally. And I fell in love and I was prepared to outwork anybody. And I was there all the time and it paid off. People noticed, I mean, I was the intern, they would come back and they'd say, what are you still doing here? So I, I was prepared to do anything. My first job when I was hired as office manager, and I thought, okay, I'm going to be doing women's policy. The deputy chief of staff, Ellen Lovell, says, listen, can you do something about the ladies' room? And I said, excuse me? And she said, the ladies' room. I mean, we have foreign leaders coming through, and it's really embarrassing. And that was my first task. I do think having that attitude helped me. I think in hearing your story, a lot of the questions that we get asked is, I want this job, but I want it in the press office. Or I want this job, but I don't want to start off as the assistant. Yep. Or how is fixing the ladies room going to help me in my career? How do you answer that? Well, I actually have this conversation a lot because since then, as you'll read in the book, I, I write that when I turned 40, I had a really hard time accepting because for a very long time, I was the kid in the office. I was always the youngest person in the office. It is why I chose to write a fairly detailed account of what it was that I started doing first, which was the world of advance and the idea of building, creating events. And in my case was on behalf of the president, but really it doesn't matter who it is, whether you're working for a company or a particular brand You are the representative of that brand, which is why I share this story about this woman at the lake house, this woman who did not like Hillary, and we couldn't figure out why she didn't like her. And sure enough, we descend on her house. We like force her to feed us. We like basically invite ourselves to stay over. Hillary swims in this frigid lake. And after two hours of coffee, the woman basically admits to me, I wasn't treated well when I was at the White House. I didn't get a good seat. And I don't think the first lady recognized me. And I felt that sense of place and responsibility and this idea that it wasn't just about me. I represented something bigger than me and that mattered. And I think to get yourself in that headspace of, okay, today it's unfortunately, you know, not doing women's policy, but maybe doing some research that goes into the briefing book that eventually gets you there. There is value to putting the work in. I mean, I happen to believe that anyone who does this kind of event planning or building or strategizing, it's the best preparation for just about any job. As you said, you were known as like the kid. 
you grew up there. You grew up working for, you know, different iterations, but these powerhouse couple. I hate the term imposter syndrome because I, I think it kind of implies that you're not supposed to be there when I think you are. But like, did you feel that? What are some ways you got through it? I think one of the unique challenges that I had, and, and I think anybody who's lost a parent can probably relate to this. I was a very outgoing young person. I you know, would write ridiculous, horrible poetry and then go to people's houses and be like, do you want to hear my new poem? And I was so confident and so proud of my work. And when my father died, something in me, the trauma of losing him really took me years to process. And I have to say, one of the effects of that was really losing my voice. I walked into that White House and I would not say I was the most confident woman there by far. I felt very insecure. Hillary loves to tell the story of when I first started traveling, you know, they used to try us all out. I didn't just get this job traveling with Hillary. There was a bunch of us. We were all kind of competing against each other. And she would say, Huma, I cannot hear you. What? Like I, I, I would whisper and it wasn't so much imposter syndrome as insecurity. I never wanted to get anything wrong. I knew that I knew how to do the job, but the White House was sink or swim. They kind of tossed you in the deep end and they would see how you would handle it. Like the you know story I tell about losing Hillary's clothes in the East River because I didn't know that when a president of the United States traveled, it meant four helicopters and not one. And I'm on the staff helicopter that lands. And as it takes off, the prop wash from the rotors lift her suit, which she's supposed to wear for a speech the next morning. And Marine One is landing. The suit is floating in the East River away. Oh my God. And I run inside and this man comes with a broom. And we didn't tell her that story for years. I figured <laughs> out, you know, how to get it dry clean. But it was, it was all of these kind of like, you either sank or you swam. And I was always determined to no matter what, I knew what the mission was and I was going to get the job done. So I didn't lack that confidence. It was the public speaking. I mean, honestly, Danielle, I am doing right now with you the thing that scares me the most. Liz Craft and Sarah Fain are TV writers and producers in L.A. and co-hosts of the podcast Happier in Hollywood. On Happier in Hollywood, they share all the juicy details of their career in television, from pitching shows to casting pilots to getting that dreaded cancellation call. But it's not all about Hollywood. Liz and Sarah have career advice no matter what industry you work in. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. You've been through so many positions in, in your private life that have yeah. forced you into that spotlight that ultimately got you here today talking about these things. How do you feel now when you talk about insecurity and fear of public speaking? Frankly, for most of my life, I was the invisible or secondary person to anybody else, whether it was my larger than life parents. I would walk around the streets of Saudi Arabia and people would stop and say, your mom's amazing, your dad's amazing. So I, from an early age, knew I was with people of great character and respect. And then I go straight into the White House and obviously in the Clinton world, I, I was the invisible behind the scenes person, which is how it should be. And frankly, I liked that. And then I married somebody who was in public life at the time, sitting congressman who was very dynamic, arguably a rising star in the Democratic Party in that moment. And so I was fine being on the side. But what I realized is while I was silent, everybody else was telling my story. And if you let somebody else tell the story, they're writing your history. 
And for me, staking claim to my truth and my journey. I mean, I really do believe that everything in life happens for a reason. And if all these horrible things, I had my heart broken and stomped on and it took me a very long time to recover from that, but I did make it through the other side. The single biggest thing that people stop me on the street about, even till today, are people who go through similar things. I know that what I went through was unique and that it was in the national news, but I know my situation is not unique to me. And so for me, a little bit of it is paying it forward. There is a other side. It can be brutally hard to get there. And now I'm finally telling my version. It's a story that I, I hope my son is really proud of, but I feel really released. You know, I, the book was supposed to be called Bracing. That's what I had originally decided to call it, which everyone else hated, because I felt like I spent so much of my life bracing for the next bad thing to happen. What was the next call? What was the next tweet? What was the next, you know, aha? What was the next reporter question? And I'm beyond that now. And when you think about everything that's in there, what you've had to go through, whether it was what happened with your husband at multiple points, what was going on with the Clintons, 2016, the emails, it's a lot. How did you keep your reputation intact professionally? Because I think that the degrees are different, but a lot of people go through some sort of of scandal or feel shame and embarrassment. And as you said, it was on a much more national scale. But how did you actually keep like your professional reputation intact when so much of it was commingled? I lived with shame for a very long time. I felt like the elephant in the room. I felt very insecure. I didn't know who I could trust. And the two things that carried me through really were my faith. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I chose to explain a lot about the Muslim faith in the book, because I think the average American does not know much about my faith. But secondly, Danielle, and this is something that I hope is helpful, and maybe it is, and maybe it isn't to other women, I really learned a hard lesson in the importance of female friendships and support because I had that starting with supporter number one, Hillary Clinton, who was no matter what there for me and loyal to me. The scene that I write where I drive to her house in Chappaqua and I have been told that I'm going to be fired and that she needed to fire me personally right after Anthony's mayoral race. She didn't. I mean, obviously I'm still here. So at least I didn't get fired as far as I know. But the reason was I was good at my job and that mattered. It did not mean I didn't have to work through the the feeling unwelcome and very, very insecure. And that that took me a long time to get through. It's that feeling that I'm not welcome here. It's a horrible, horrible feeling. Obviously, a part of what was so unique about your story is that your mentor and your boss is someone who wasn't a stranger to controversy and and public life. When you talk about feeling supported, what are some lessons that when I think about myself as a manager, if I have someone going through a crisis and they're good at their job, what did she do or how did she draw upon her experience to be able to help you ultimately? move on professionally to where you are today? Yeah. Well, just to put it in a little bit of context, her office is known as Hillary Land. I describe it as a club. 
that comes with lifetime membership. And when I joined in 1996, it is an environment where the relationship does not stop at 5 p.m. when you walk out the door and, and get in your car. And by the way, nobody was going home at 5 p.m. But this whole idea of two things, one, working with women who, as they climbed up, there's so much, I feel like, competition, especially professionally between women, which is there's not enough space for all of us at the table, so I'm going to hoard this. And she does not allow for that at all. It's everyone has a seat at the table and lifting those people up. And the second thing is, is this constant, oh my God, that sounds like you have allergies. You should go see my allergist. How are you doing? Let's help this person. This person's a good writer. But for me, every time I've had adversity in my life, and particularly as it comes to my personal challenges, she has dealt with it as a friend first and as a boss second. When I say friend, I mean, I'm here to support you. It's, you know, why after the first big story broke, she said, take the time you need to fix yourself and your family. And whether that means not traveling or not getting on the plane, there are ways we're similar and there are ways we're different. And I think one of the ways we're both similar is that, you know, I'm not rash to judgment. I'm really thoughtful about decisions that I make, as is she. And I felt like she always supported me in that way. And in 2013, after the mayor's race, where a lot of people said, oh, who must she be fired or what is wrong with her? What is she thinking? Her standing by me essentially professionally, I think really saved me. If I had been fired, I think my story would have been very different. There are two moments that really stood out to me that I want to ask you about. The first is this book would have been really different had you written it even in 2018. And there were two times that I really thought about how it would have been different. The first is when you wrote about the New York Times breaking the news of your pregnancy. Now as someone that has had a kid, been so nervous about those milestones, I can't imagine what that was like. When you think about that moment now, and as people react to the book, and that story itself is getting picked up, how do you think about it today? It was news. If I were them, I would have reported it. I can say that dispassionately now. And the reality is the New York Times reported it and they were quickly, fall everybody else was chasing the story. I feel betrayed, not by the press and certainly not by the New York Times, but by my friends who betrayed that confidence. As you know, as somebody who's had a child yourself, your first time, you're scared before 12 weeks to tell anybody. And we were not at 12 weeks. I was angry. I felt like something was stolen from me, but I don't think I processed it until so many years later, Danielle. And actually the first time I realized I was doing it was I was home and Jordan, my son must've been, I wanna say three. And he turns to me and says, mommy, you're pregnant? And it's because I was saying it so often and so unconsciously, and I still do it, that I realized, wow, this is a trauma that has stayed with me. And I think any woman who's ever been pregnant can relate to that. And that's why I, I was lucky to have people like, I write about Philippe Brynus and Nick Merrill, like two men in my life who were always prepared to tell me the hard truth. He's like, yeah, it sucks, but it is news. Yeah. And I needed that. The other moment, and again, this is the benefit of not writing it in 2018. I had my heartbreaking moment for you when you said that when Anthony comes clean yeah. and your reaction was like, how could you do this to, to the people that you represent? 
and I was reading it on my phone. So like, I literally wanted to throw my phone across the window for you. What's it like now when you revisit that moment? To the point about a 2018 book versus the 2021 book, I had to work through the anger, the bitterness, the why, why, why. And as you see in all of these moments, particular in that first moment, because Danielle, we weren't just anybody in my mind. We were this perfect couple. We had everything. And as the child of somebody who was terminally ill most of her life, every day that we're both healthy, that he's got a job, that I have a job, we didn't have to worry about money. We were so in love. I mean, we had the perfect life. It's, it's why I start the chapter at Buckingham Palace, not even a month, days before Anthony's tweet, where I say, we have to be so grateful for what we have. And after that first explosion, I felt like it was years of, I don't understand why, why, why. And I couch it in, I know there are families that are very familiar with therapy and dealing with, you know, emotional and mental health challenges, which by the way, I fully now support, but I didn't grow up in that culture or that lifestyle. So it took me a while to get there, but I had to go through it. And I had to get very, very low to realize that there were two options. I was either going to slowly kill myself because all the bitterness and anger, it actually wasn't even hurting him anymore. It was me and the mother I was going to be for our son and to not have that cycle repeat itself. I chose to go through the disclosure process, which he had asked me to go through on more than one occasion. And it's not the right choice for everybody, but it, it was for us. And for me, instead of pain shopping, as a friend described it, when I would look through his phone, it was the only way through. It was the only way through for me. You talked in the, the beginning of this interview about this book being in a lot of ways, like a, a love letter to your dad. As I'm hearing you go through the work that was put into it. It's also, I think, kind of a preamble of sorts for your son. What do you hope that he takes away from it? I hope he takes away from the fact that his mother tried to do some good in this world and on behalf of this country. Our children are also like sponges. I mean, he hears things I don't even realize. I took um, my son to the 9-11 memorial on the 20th anniversary thinking, okay, he's now nine. He's ready to hear this. And as I'm explaining, we're standing at the fountains and I'm explaining what happened in the best language I know how, he says, mommy, wasn't there a plane in Pennsylvania too? And didn't a plane hit the Pentagon? I mean, I was, my mouth just dropped open. We live in a time where I can't protect him from things. And when my parents protected this terminal illness from us, we never found out whatever, but it's not possible to do that anymore, wrap our kids in bubble wrap. And so for me, it's about, I want him to hear the truth from me and from his father. And sure, there are some hard truths, but I hope he walks away from this book when he's old enough to read it and understand it and say, wow, I'm really proud of my mom and I'm really proud of my grandpa and my grandma. And the book opens with my love of storytelling and the fact that I get to share my own story as somebody who her entire life was surrounded by stories and generations of people who were storytellers and public servants. And I carry that responsibility of the tradition I was born into. I mean, my dad broke his back when he was 21, was thrown from a horse and walked around for almost a week, not telling anyone because he didn't want his parents to worry about him. He was the only surviving son. Like the grit that that took 
fast forward when I was 16 and thrown from a horse and fell on my back and my dad came running over, first checked if I was okay, and then made me get back on that horse. That's the house I was raised in. And I hope I am even just a fraction of as good a parent as my parents were to leave and teach my son values and principles and know where he came from and to be proud of his heritage and to do whatever it is that he wants. You said you wanted to write this because so many people had written your story for you or that you are part of other people's narratives. There are also, although this is a completely unique to you experience, a lot of women are put in the position of feeling like they don't own their voice or someone else is telling their story. What's your advice on how to take that very, very, very first step on this journey of reclaiming it? I think that this is not going to be the thing that a lot of people will want to hear because I didn't want to hear this for a long time. I think it is doing the thing that terrifies you the most. Because if you can conquer that, and it's not easy. I was so scared of putting my voice out in the world. I was so scared of saying the wrong thing. that Before I would go to events in the 2016 campaign, I would be nauseous. I could barely function. I had two choices. Walk away, stay in my shell, or do the thing that scared me the most. And it's not easy because I think a lot of women are like me in that we are the other. We are somebody's daughter, somebody's wife or partner, and somebody's parent. So where does that leave me? Where does that leave us as women? And my father was my age when he was told he had five years to live. And I feel like I'm very young. And so for me, the best advice I could give is time is so precious. And whether you believe in a reincarnation or not, we only have one life. I mean, I have a plate at the entrance of my door. This is Carpe Diem. Just take every day as a new adventure and new opportunity, which is what this book is. This is my whole new chapter and I can't wait for it to begin. So wrapping up two final questions. This is a a question from one of our listeners, Amy. She said, your career seems like it involves a lot that's often (laughs) happening all at the same time. How do you figure out what's most urgent? And do you have any tips for how to juggle so many things at once? Amy, I live in my my moleskin notebooks and it's very old fashioned. I know my team, particularly my millennial colleagues, like roll their eyes, but I would have from my earliest professional memory would make boxes of to do. I think it helped that there was always a mission. People were always surprised about the last two months of the campaign in 2016. Like it must've been so much to juggle. But I knew there was a mission. So I would make my boxes and then I always had a lot of satisfaction um, checking them off. But I worked all the time. And the one piece of advice I would give to Amy, which is what my dad gave me and I did not listen to, was a good life is a balanced life. And I didn't know that for a long time. My entire life was work. And now I have found that rebalance and I feel like I'm a much healthier person. But prioritizing is key. And, you know, moleskin black books also are hugely helpful. Last question. Who is someone else we should have on the show? Besides Hillary Clinton? Well, I mean, that would be helpful, Huma. Please, you know, I think you may have a a line. Seriously, I would say Hillary Clinton. I'm offering her up to you. Okay, thank you. I know some people I can call. Well, we will take you up on it. Huma, thank you very much. Uh, Congratulations on the book and go check it out. Thank you, Danielle. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less.